2: First thing I'd like to do is just give a thanks to the Sangha for our support of one another, as we become ourselves. It's a a wonderful gift, this song, so every day I'm very thankful for all of you. I also wanna give thanks to the original guardians of Chicagoland, the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi Nations. May there be uh, justice, peace, and a thriving earth here on, on this land. So happy Labor Day, everybody. Today is Labor Day. I hope some of you have the day off. Uh, I wanted to give a talk today on the, uh, just a, a little bit of the history and context of this holiday uh, and also use it as an opportunity to explore the uh the aspect of the eightfold path that is uh, right livelihood it's the the fifth dimension of buddhism's eightfold path so uh the first labor day celebration in the united states mm-hmm. took place in new york city in september 1882 and it was first signed into law as a state holiday in 1887 Uh, And a bunch of states followed, and then it culminated in President Grover Cleveland announcing it as a federal holiday in the summer of 1894. So uh, the birth of this holiday and um, its sister international holiday, May Day, uh, which is also known as International Labor Day, that's held on May 1st. Uh, which is actually in commemoration of the Haymarket Affair or the, the Haymarket Riot, depending on uh, whose, whose history book you're reading, uh, which happened in Chicago in 1886. Um, and I really encourage folks to explore the history of the, the Haymarket Affair. It's uh, a truly fascinating moment in American history that I think uh, dictated a lot of what uh, labor, the relationship between labor and state was going to look like up until the present, actually. Uh, but, you know, you notice that these holidays come in the years following the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1800s. So the Industrial Revolution had a massive impact, obviously, on the relationship between work and the worker, worker and supervisor, worker and state, and the relationship within the heart of all of us, of every human being, uh, of their role as a worker, what it means to produce value in the United States, uh, and managing that role as a worker with the inalienable dignity that uh, is being a sentient human being. So basic rights like a minimum wage, a living wage, and a forty-hour work week were not always a given, and uh, they feel like it to me. They feel like um, it sort of feels like when I think about Star Wars that there was a time before Star Wars, you know, that there was. It's 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 weird to imagine because it feels so omnipresent, you know, and like as part of the 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 cultural landscape of the United States. But, uh, you know, these are very basic things, minimum wages, living wages, uh, 40-hour work week. But these were uh, rights and privileges that were very hard won uh, by the the efforts and courage and suffering of countless workers who put their lives uh, on the line to turn... These concepts into into rights. And I actually started to discover when I was writing this talk yesterday that there wasn't even a a federal minimum wage in the United States until 1938, which feels very recent. So uh, I also found a Wikipedia page. That listed over a thousand deaths of workers in the United States that uh, came from protesting for workers' rights since the 1850s. Uh, it, that that page also stated that there are a couple of historians that claim that the United States has the most violent labor history of any country in the world. I I don't I don't know how to quantify. An idea like that. So, workers' rights are very much a living issue for us today, uh, as well. Uh, it's very real for me at the moment. Uh, I had a job about a year ago that I was making more money at, but was less happy in. And now I'm in a job where I'm making less money, but I'm more happy in. But I had health care at the previous job and I don't have health care at the current job. So it's, uh, this is, this is a tender aspect of our lives about what, what's important to us. What, uh, what are we going to be giving our our labor energy to? How are we going to, how are we going to interact with capitalism? That's kind of the way I think about it. It's like, what's, what's, what's my interaction with capitalism? Uh, But it's also a big existential question for us as well today. Uh, Questions like how do we create jobs and a working infrastructure that take care of this planet for our children and our children's children, rather than setting us up for an imminent climate collapse? Uh, When will the enslaved peoples who built the wealth of this country be given reparations for the labor that was stolen from them? And... uh, the immense suffering that they endured? When will the wage gap between genders be eliminated? When will there be a federal minimum wage that's also a living wage? So uh, as we take today to honor the ancestors that gave us so much, sometimes everything, so that we could have the working rights and privileges that we depend on today, I think it's important to honor them by taking seriously the question of what a fair and just work life is. And um, I don't mean that just in the big picture questions, but also in intimate day to day experiences of each of us as we clock in and clock out, how do we conduct ourselves in the workplace? Um, What are what do healthy working relationships look like? How do you take care of yourself at your job? Uh, How do you know that you're in the right job?
1: Yeah.
2: And one of the aspects of Buddhism that I was most impressed with uh, when I was first acquainting myself to this tradition was that this question of what is right livelihood is just baked right into the pie from the beginning of what this spiritual tradition is. And it's honored as a major aspect of this spiritual path for each of us. And, uh, and I found that very impressive. I, I, um, Uh, And it actually, I think, had an influence on me taking this tradition seriously as um, something that had uh, something to offer me in terms of uh, peace of mind. Uh, So the integration of right livelihood uh, into the Eightfold Path demonstrates that our work, each of of us, our, our work that we do is always in a universal context. Uh, The day-to-day is the day-to-day. You know, it's the making the coffee, and it's the printing the meeting schedule, and it's writing the presentation, and it's also inextricably part of the Universal Freedom Project that, you know, is our path and is the unfolding of the universe. So that's the responsibility that each of us have, and how do we undertake that with uh, the appropriate amount of I don't want to say seriousness, but with respect, I guess, Uh, but also with joy. I I really firmly uh, believe that playfulness and joy um, are necessary parts of our lives. So I'm sure there's a lot of ideas and literature about what constitutes right livelihood from many Buddhist traditions, and I decided not to get caught up in researching all of that, uh, about what particularly constitutes right livelihood, uh, depending on who you ask and what Buddhist school, because I feel like that's that, that could be an endless rabbit hole, and then I would agree or disagree with some of them. Or, you know. uh, so I, I thought rather than getting caught up in all the possible particular permutations and examples that... For uh, tonight's talk, I would ground this question of what right livelihood is by exploring uh, how they interact with our Bodhisattva precepts and uh, look at a quick story from the Book of Serenity, which I think is always a, just a really helpful tool for me in terms of uh, grounding uh, talks um, and, and, and give something nice to chew on for all of us. So I'm going to propose today that exploring the question of right livelihood with the precepts as our guide, uh, yeah, it's not a bad way to go about it. And these 10 precepts uh, can give us a basic framework, but it also allows for the fact that each of us has to go into this journey in our own style and from our own perspective, our own vantage point. So the nuts and bolts of what what right livelihood is is going to look different for each of us. So, as a reminder, or as for anyone who might be hearing this for the first time, I think we're all vets here. So, just as a reminder, uh, the ten brave bodhisattva precepts are A disciple of Buddha does not kill. A disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given. A disciple of Buddha does not misuse sexuality. A disciple of Buddha does not lie. The disciple of buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others a disciple of buddha does not speak of faults of others a disciple of buddha does not praise self at the expense of others a disciple of buddha is not possessive of anything a disciple of buddha does not harbor ill will a disciple of buddha does not disparage the three treasures so, what do these precepts look like in the context of our uh, our work lives? Uh, I've been, you know, taking these uh, as sort of the guide for what job for me to pick, uh, you know, as uh, as I interact with capitalism. So, I've tried to find work that uh, doesn't promote killing, isn't stealing. Uh, isn't uh, a misuse of sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I feel like, you know, we, each of us could use each of these as a guide as well. And I think it's important, and I, I learned this in my, you know, days where I was a little bit more active in activism, that it's not possible to do this perfectly, that there's there's no, like, uh, when when you're in a system of capitalism that, uh, is necessarily exploitative in some aspects. Uh, I don't believe there's any way to have a job that isn't uh, connected in some way to some form of, of being part of that exploitative process. Um, so, where we each kind of find the peace of mind is is up to each of us, um, as, as I've said already. Right? Um, so. Uh, I think what I wanted to – I'm trying to keep track of time, too, because i really love to chat mostly with uh, y'all about how you explore the question of right livelihood. Um, but I think I want to give a little bit more in-depth on uh, – because the, the question of what your job is based on these precepts is a, little, is a big fish to fry – Um, But I'm a little bit more interested in going through them about what, how to conduct ourselves in the workplace based on these precepts. Um, And uh, some of them are obvious, like, you know, a disciple of Buddha does not kill. I hope we're, you know, uh, not in scenarios where, you know, situations at work drive us to kill each other or make us want, or, or, you know, we're profiting from or something like that. Um, but I, you know, it's, I think for me, it's helpful to look at each of them as a, uh, as a positive aspect and in terms of clarifying what it means in my work life on the day to day. So not taking what is not given, uh, that to me can mean like, you know, when I'm, when I'm at work at the coffee shop, uh, if we're allotted a certain amount of food as being on the, you know, while we're on the clock to honor that, even though, uh, it's probably, it would be probably pretty easy to get away with it, of not keeping track of it yourself. But, um, uh, you know, I I make an effort to keep track as much as I can of, uh, what, what I'm eating there. Uh, not misusing sexuality, so I look at that of like how do how do I promote healthy, supporting supportive relationships with everybody? How do I help create an environment that people feel safe in, uh, and that they have friends there that will help them if uh, if uh, some sort of situation does come up that they have people that they can talk to that will take it seriously and, and, uh, and protect each other um, not lying. So, you know, I think of that more as like being, being honest. And I, I, I really think that it's fun to do that in a playful way, you know, just sometimes I'll, you know, just go up to my supervisor and say, okay, so, you know, the filtered soul beans and the philharmonic beans, they, that sounds, they both sound very, very similar, uh, or they look very similar on the tin. And I accidentally just put like half a bucket of beans in the phil, the philharmonic beans, even though it's supposed to be the filtered soul beans. Question mark? What happens now? You know. So there's a you know it, not not taking yourself too seriously of just knowing you're going to make mistakes and you're. I've realized and seen that the more playful you are and upfront I am, I try to be in the workplace about you know um, when I do make a mistake, it relaxes people and relaxes myself. Um, because then it's, you know, it's like, oh, well, we have, we we have to make mistakes like that. And it's the, the whole thing actually runs a little bit smoother because people aren't caught up in trying to, you know, be looking like they're not like they're, they're, people are trying less to look like they're perfect at their job.
1: You
2: know, not intoxicating mind or body of self or others. So, you know, I think about that like uh, being honest with folks uh, about what I recommend and what I what I don't, uh, and uh, just being authentic, being myself uh, with people and uh, having that be a, a you know, a, a, a grounding for people to be authentic as well, and that usually provides some joy for everybody involved. It obviously means I try not to, you know, go to work drunk or high, but that. It's been pretty easy uh, for me. Um, not to speak of the faults of others. You know, That's that one's a little bit more difficult because it's like if you, if you know that, you know, person X, you know, put the wrong coffee beans in the tin or something like that. How do you make that process not about, well, you know, Mike really screwed up at work. You know, I, I have to tell my boss about how Mike screwed up and now we have to do more work because of Mike, You know, um, I think there's, there's a way to, you know, talk about those, the, when, when things go slightly haywire, where it's about attending to the situation rather than saying somebody can't do their job, you know, and, and and I think it takes a little bit more effort. I think people, from what I've noticed, people like to have a little bit more of a, a um, blaming, Attitude, you know, of like, oh man, like where where it's sort of, I don't know if I call it back talk or talking behind somebody's back. It's very tempting, I've seen, for people to do that. So, making an effort to have it be uh, more about the situation rather than the person. Uh, not praising self at the expense of others. So, uh, you know, I think about that, like not taking myself too seriously in general and especially at work. Um, uh, and, and not trying to think of myself as being necessarily better or worse than anybody else at, at it. Uh, not being possessive of anything. And I think for me, that means not identifying too much with the job. Um, I've learned the hard way that these things come and go. Jobs that you really identify with, you can lose. And, uh, and, and so finding the balance of being passionate about what you're doing without, you know, putting all of your, the meaning of your life into what your job is, has been kind of important spiritual work for me. And not harboring ill will. So, you know, if Mike spilled the beans yesterday, it's a new day today and, uh, and just kind of starting fresh every day. So, um... These precepts can be our guide in the realm of principle and vow, but, uh, you know, I've just tried now to explore how it can be a little bit more practical in creating a workspace that's both enjoyable, flexible on a day-to-day basis. And I just want to, you know, recognize that we might be in a job that we're very passionate about, uh, but we also might be a job that we're just doing to pay the bills, you know, um, that, that we're doing as an act of self-defense in a very aggressively capitalist society. Um, So how do we bring Bodhisattva energy to our work in either case, Uh, whether we're really passionate about it or we're just getting by with it? Um, They're both important parts of our lives. So uh, I I think I'll very, very briefly just bring in this case from the book of Serenity uh, to explore bringing that Bodhisattva energy to work. So this is case 25. It's called Yangguan's Rhinoceros Fan. Uh, and the Book of Serenity, for anybody that doesn't know, is uh, a collection of 100 koans that's modeled after the, the Blue Cliff Record. Uh, and it was put together by Hanja in the 11th century. And uh, there's a really good translation by Thomas Cleary. So this is case 25, and the case is one day Yang Guan called to his attendant, bring me the rhinoceros fan. The attendant said, the fan is broken. Yang Guan said, if the fan is broken, then bring me back the rhinoceros. The attendant had no reply, and Zifu drew a circle and wrote the word rhino inside of it. So this case really stood out to me because it reminds me of just ridiculous requests at work sometimes, you know, when you feel like you're doing something that you're like, I can't believe my boss asked me to do that. Bring back the rhinoceros. I can't bring back the rhinoceros. The fan is broken. It needs the fan, but what does he mean bring back the rhinoceros? Um, So I love Zifu's response uh, about drawing the circle and writing the word rhino inside of it, which shows, you know, a creativity and sense of humor, um, which, I think are really vital in, in workplaces. And that I, I really, that it shows that there's always an option of finding it, that, that, that energy is always available to have some creative way of solving the problem at hand. Um, so there's a couple, obviously many, many ways to take this case. Maybe, maybe young one is telling is this is just a joke, you know, uh, bring back the rhinoceros and, but if it's not, if it's like a real serious request, how would we meet a request like that at work with a sense of play uh, and creativity? So uh, I've really found that to be true. And this is kind of how I'll, I'll wrap up is, I've um,
3: you know, found that
2: the days that are happiest, not just for me, but for my coworkers, or for, for my experience, the best impact I've been able to have when I'm at work is when I'm just uh being playful as much as I can, like take like knowing my job but not not taking myself too seriously as I'm executing um and i I' felt moments where I feel like that relaxes not only myself but I think um, just helps uh helps people helps us smile as we get through it you know? so um I think that's all I want to say. Uh, hopefully I've left a little bit of time for some discussion. And I'm really curious about, you, you know, your experiences about how you explore this question of right livelihood. I think it's a very important aspect of our, our path today. So I
1: want to thank you for your
2: attention.
4: Um, for those of you online, you can either raise your hand on video or click the raise hand button, which is... Somewhere along the bottom toolbar. Reactions, right there. Under under reactions. The, things on reactions. Yes.
1: Thank you. Yeah, under reactions then.
4: Brian, I see has his hand up.
3: Hi, hey, Brian. Hey there. <clears throat> I almost managed to come in in person tonight. I wanted to hear your talk, but. Uh, Conditions prevented it, but I was glad to hear it uh, on Zoom, and it was an excellent talk. It, possibly one of the best expositions of right right livelihood I've heard. Um, Can you hear me okay? Yeah, really clear. Uh, I love your tying in the precepts with it. I love your background uh, in our country's labor history. Um, I thought, I mean, I'm going to probably re-listen to your talk as it, as it becomes available uh, and take notes. <laughs> uh, very well done. Um, I, could, it's, I have to confess of the eightfold path, the right livelihood aspect has always given me the most trouble because it seems to me to hold the most um, expectation over my head uh you know i've always found it you know i can i can always meditate you know i can always um you know try to be mindful of my speech but you know the whole topic of right mindfulness or right uh, livelihood always struck me as the most demanding aspect of the path i mean there's so many people i guess possibly me included i've worked in the commodities markets for my whole career for 35 years and uh, and just raw naked capitalism where people were doing horrible things to each other f- to make money, you know, and, it, and as I've deepened my practice over the years, it always was kind of that nagging uh guilt of, this is the one thing that I s- probably should change karmically, but I haven't <laughs> um, because as, as my, uh, I guess understanding of dependent arising, uh, and non-self have deepened, um, the fact that our whole capitalist system, uh, by its structure, uh, causes people to become, you know, to do, to, to essentially do bad karma, to, to, um, to engage in practices that they might not other just by force of it's part of the job. And this is what's expected of you. And why is it part of the job? Because there's the capitalist uh necessity to maximize shareholder profit, you know, and on and on. And then it always seems to me that right livelihood is sort of holding a big um sign over all of us our whole society uh with the with the understanding of emptiness that nothing is inherent uh our capitalist system is not inherent so it always struck me that the most honest response to right livelihood is to be an activist you know to try and change our those aspects of our system that um necessitate bad behavior among us you know, whether it's selfish greed, whether it's uh, inhumane practices, one towards the other. Um, And it seems like a real tough ask. Uh, But then again, you know, nowhere in the Dharma does it say, oh, this is a really simple thing you can do in your spare time. And it really, I mean, the Dharma really does require us to change our lives um, in important ways. And I think, this is maybe one of the most important because we can all, you know, sit on our cushions and think of ourselves as wonderful Buddhists. But as I've always felt that as long as there are people being murdered or starved or whatever as a logical outcome of our system, then we, all, as many of us as possible with that awareness need to be on the front lines trying to change our system. So what are your, What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Sorry for opening such a can of worms.
2: No, it's fine. And I mean, I'm going to respond really briefly if that's okay. Um, Because, you know, that's, it's a big question. Um, I think being an activist is important and great. And I also think that if it's, if, if the, if you can, if, if what you can give is clocking in and clocking out, that that is okay. Um, Because, you know, you're, there's, um, you know, there, all of us, my my grandma said once, you know, you never know somebody else's pain and what they're going through. So, you know, I I don't think, I don't want to judge anybody who, you know, is just clocking in, clocking out and thinking that, like, and saying that they're not working hard enough for the freedom of everybody. Like, there's a, uh, you know, we've got family responsibilities that we have to deal with and personal struggles of, you know, so, uh, I think if, if you're able, if an, if a person is able to have that aspect of their life of being an activist, then that's phenomenal. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, you know, that it's, again, that it's just not, it's not possible. I don't think to come out completely clean on any of this, Uh, you know, it's so not to be too hard on ourselves about, um, you know, trying to find the perfect job where, you know, we can find no, no connection to suffering anywhere based on what, what job we're having. Um, you know, maybe it's possible, but I, I have decided I'm not going to try too hard. I mean, I'm going to try about it, but not, I have a tendency to go down a rabbit hole about it. So just, I've been working on
1: figuring out where to stop It, uh,
4: yeah uh <laughs> um, it's interesting because uh I was living in Japan, and I had a permanent resident card, and I came back to help my father in his supreme business because he was very ill, and I was very naive, I didn't know about business at all, and I've been a teacher up until that point for all of my adult life, and uh the people in the office didn't want me around. They didn't want the son of the boss in the office, so they made me a salesman to get me out of the office. <laughs> and they sent me to a sales training called "The One Minute Salesperson." And the guy talked for about fifteen minutes and got everybody rubbed up. And then he said, "What is the business? What is the purpose of business?" And forty-four iron would go up and say, "Profits." And I'm sitting there saying, what the hell did I come back to this country for? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> and the guy saw me and, you know, I'm sitting down, with my head down. And he looked at me and he says, what do you think the purpose of business is? And I says, it's to meet people's social and psychological needs, which is very Japanese, about the ningen kanke, the human relations and the connections we have to one another. And he said to me, Did you take this before? (laughs) The woman, a salesperson, is is that the purpose of business is to meet people's needs. And if you meet people's needs, then you'll be profitable. Profits are the measure, not the goal. And he says uh, the question you ask yourself as a salesperson when you go into a meeting is, how do I want my tombstone to read? Here lies David, who sold X amount of product, or here lies Jerry, who met people's needs and in so doing had her needs met as well. So I think there's something that we could take that, that Brian, we don't have to be an activist in that sense. Is what is our intent in our business? Mm-hmm. And what is our intent with our fellow workers, the people we work with? Now, I may be a salesman, but I have to talk to the pressman if I'm a print salesman, and mm-hmm. I have to have a good relationship with them. Yeah. And the same thing with my production assistant who's processing the jobs, they go through shop. Yeah. If I'm just utterly cold and just thinking about money, I'm actually in the long run going to get hurt because these people are going to tune me out and my job's not going to get done most efficiently.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So I think part of it is intention. What is our intention in business? What is our intention in livelihood? Are we there to help people? And that's how I see myself, that I'm there to help my customer get the most efficient, cost-effective way of producing a job. How can I help my customer do that? If I do that and I do it right, then eventually I'll, I'll, I'll reap some reward in the, in the long run. Maybe not right away, but in the long run I will. And I, so I think what I bring up here is what is our intention? And I think that's the most important thing when you're talking about like life.
2: Yeah, I mean, there, you, there's, uh, it's that that old story about uh, good good friendship being the like the whole path. I'm paraphrasing it uh, from from our tradition, but I feel like that's possible to do anywhere, you know. Yeah, um, and maybe you're not able to you know have a deep friendship with somebody you know while selling them a cup of coffee but you can be genuine and interested in who they are and and have fun with that interaction and try to see them genuinely and uh and that you know that's so i agree with you and um i'm i'm sure there's been a lot of immeasurable amounts of kindness and bodhisattva energy that's happened in you know uh, in times where people are uh, doing business with each other. It's totally possible.
1: I've been a middle manager in a large corporation for like 20 years,
0: managing the team of people. And what strikes me the most is how much people really want to do a good job. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not 100% interested in the company or... Not, don't 100% support the upper echelons of the company, people really
1: want to do a good job. And if something goes wrong, they take it very personally. So, and I was thinking about, you know, your, your talk about, oh, somebody put the wrong beans
0: in the wrong... It was me. ...in the wrong <laughs> or whatever. But,
1: and I think that's important. There is a... There is this There is a sense that, okay, figure out who did it wrong and then somehow punish them, as if somehow,
0: or the phrase in the corporate world is give them more training, as if somehow they did it on purpose. And I'm like, well, nobody makes a mistake on purpose. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? They just, its the answer is just to fix it. But, it, but I am always struck by... By how much people really want to do a good job, and so what I tell my team when they really begin to feel bad because something wrong, I'm like, I'm "Making a book here, you know, not the end of the world. Nobody's dying. The fire department is not going to come. The police are not going to come. Relax." It just strikes me as very interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, your I think your labor is a, is a deep expression of. Who you like what, what talents you have, you know, what you have to offer. You know. So I think whatever job you're in, even if it's one that doesn't feel if you, even if it's one that's like the job you've been working on getting for thirty years or the one the first one you're getting, like that it's um it's it's uh it's an expression of who you are,
1: you know,
2: and how you do it.
1: How am I doing with time, Jerry? Five minutes. Five minutes, Um, why well, I would
4: just like to say uh, thank you so much for this talk. I found it excellent and a good um, a good encouragement to practice. work matters are very much on my mind lately
1: mm-hmm.
4: um, and so this was just a really great robust overview uh, to kind of help my help my thinking help my decision making um, at what for me is currently a pivotal point in my job-ness, but is, you know, certainly always relevant, you know, the, the points that you're making. So uh, a lot to chew on, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure.
1: David Wright. Dylan, thank you so much for that talk.
5: It was It was rich and made me think about the precepts in a, in a new light and um also thank you for framing right livelihood in a way that uh, that applies beyond the charm circle that 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 most most of uh most of us in in the sangha are, are in i mean I, I as someone who you know uh being among other things um white and able-bodied and you know, um uh Right livelihood can feel like oh yes what 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 of all the many options might I possibly choose, but that's not i don 't think the experience of, of, of everyone and you described right livelihood as a way of um, a way of being in the world and being in relation um, that includes situations of uh, you know where where, where um, livelihood consists in doing what one can do to hold to hold uh, body and bones together for oneself and and, and the, know, that
1: you're connected with. So thank you. Yes. Um, I think your talk is very timely, not to
0: save your day, but I just thought I'd raise up the name of Barbara Ehrenreich, who died this week, who wrote the wonderful book Nickel and Dined, uh, as well as a lot of other uh,
1: books uh, related to this topic. And yeah, that's all I have to say. <laughs> thank you, Dylan, for I uh, uh, so think it's timely, very useful uh, well, something that we all have some relationship with and some issues with. So uh, thank you for uh, developing Thought about this. But this may be that. Dylan, I it's time maybe for for Dylan, I would like to say one more thing. Mm-hmm. Um I never feel like I'm off the clock. So I
0: think right livelihood is, you know, we can relate it to capitalism, but I think the points you're making
1: are about pretty much every instant of our experience. So thank you for offering that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs>